Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And in a little bit, we will be joined by Cal State Fullerton coach Jason Dietrich. That's new Cal State Fullerton coach Jason Dietrich. Uh, just hired a couple months ago to take over the Titans program. So we're going to talk with him about what it's like to, uh, to be taking over the program this summer and what to expect from the Titans moving forward. Uh, going to spend some time on that, uh, you know, diving into to Fullerton a little bit today here on the Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, uh, we're here. It's the dog days of summer in August, but we're, we're already looking ahead to, to fall ball, to, to the 2022 season. It still feels kind of weird to say the 2022 season, uh, but that, that's, what we're, uh, that's what we're looking ahead to. Uh, still, still a long ways off, but that's, we, we, are, we are starting to, to flip the page. Uh, to uh, to next season already, and, and we're excited to do so today to get into it a little bit about what to expect from from Cal State Fullerton going forward with uh, with new head coach Jason Dietrich. But just overall, we're, we're we're starting to flip the page, but also gonna gonna spend a little bit more time here on the uh, on the 2021 season. So uh, you know, here in August, we're, we're kind of still a little bit caught in between, I guess. Yeah, it, it's the uh, this is the, the handoff portion of the summer. You know, we're summer ball finishing up, we're doing some last, you know, some last bits of, of cleaning up 2021. We're looking ahead to 2022 with players getting back to campus here in the next few weeks. So this, this really does feel like that, that few week period where, you know, we're, we're kind of, like I said, handing off to something else. And boy, you know, am I glad that we've gotten here this quickly? I mean, obviously it's been a, as we discussed on a previous episode last week or the week before, just a breakneck pace at which the off season so far has moved. I think the, the positive of that is, you know, you think back to last year and of course that was because of the pandemic, but it took us so long to get to this point and we still had so much uncertainty. So like, my goodness, is it a, a nice relief that in some ways that we haven't really had that kind of, that kind of break and been forced to, to go that long without something going on in our world. So while it, it does seem like it's coming at us fast and furious, um, it, it has struck me just how, how nice it has been that there's not these giant lulls where, you know, not just from a content standpoint, but from just a being engaged with a sport standpoint that we haven't had to deal with that kind of thing this year. Yeah. Like you mentioned, summer ball wrapping up, um, some of the leagues already completed most of them just finishing up this week. I feel like though, uh, the Cape Cod league, as we record this, uh, is in the midst of their finals between Bourne and Brewster. Brewster took a, uh, a 1-0 lead in the best of three series um, on Tuesday night. So by the time you're listening to this, it's possible it'll be over. Um, but while uh, monitoring that and, and other leagues around the country, the, the new Appalachian League had an exciting conclusion to their, their championship with the, the walk-off. Um, so yeah, interesting times around, around summer ball as, uh, as they wrap up, but, uh, also very much looking forward to, uh, to, to starting to, to talk about fall ball is, um, 
we're just a couple of weeks away. Labor Day is a little later this year. So I, I don't know how that's impacting everyone's start date um, for, for getting back to like school start date and then how that, that affects fall ball start dates. But it'll be here pretty quickly here as, uh, as, as we get into the, the middle of August and, and we get all the, uh, the back to school shopping ads on, on TV and uh, wherever else you're, you're getting your advertisements. Well, that is a great callback. I, I, because as a kid, I don't know about you, but one of the worst days every summer when I was, and, and it would be particularly bad now because I, I feel like it's one of those things that um, as, as retail stores kind of have to manufacture like holidays or stretch out how long a holiday is or a, a peak shopping time is to try to maximize the people they can get into the store in a world where we're doing more and more shopping online a story we've, we've heard a million times over at this point, but back to my original point that the, one of the worst days for me every summer was the first time I walked into the store, like with my mom and saw the back to school banners all over the, all over the store. Cause it was just like, Oh no, the count, the countdown is on, you know? Um, and it was usually around the first, you know, first of August or so that that kind of thing would happen. And I feel like, you know, I've not been in a, that, that type of store and I've not been in a, Target or Walmart long enough here in these last few weeks to really know how early those came out. But I get the feeling that those banners probably come out a little bit earlier than they used to, which would not have been good for my mental health as a, uh, as a teenager and preteen. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nice not having to think about that these days. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> Indeed. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how it's so, I don't know if you experienced the same way, but obviously this goes without saying, but going to, off to college is such a different experience from high school. I, not only just from the standpoint of, I remember my first day of my first college class ever, I sat down and it was a kinesiology class. It was very, everybody had to take it at Sam Houston at the time. And um, we sat down and it was like, a, basically like kind of like health, like you took in high school, but it was that just redux of that. And we sat down and the guy read the syllabus and, and he was a grad assistant. He read the syllabus and asked us if we had any questions. And then said, okay, here's what the book looks like. Make sure you get the book. We're going to be testing out of the book. So you, yes, you do need the book. And then said, okay, that's it. And I remember looking around being like, so do we, do we just sit here the rest of the time? Or what do we do? Because, you know, in high school, you can't just leave. So that was a big change. The, the thing, the, the point I was making though, is that there were times in college, especially summers where I had worked or was just otherwise occupied with, with something else where, you know, in high school, you, and even younger, you're acutely aware of when the first day of school is like, whether it's because you're counting down to it because you're dreading it or because you're excited to go back, which, you know, some years I was one, some years I was the other, but in college, there would be times where I would kind of look up in August and be like, Oh my gosh, like my, my classes start next week. Like I need to, <laughs> like, I probably need to go look at, like, see what books I need or just think, get my mind ready for that. Cause it, it did sneak up on me a way that like, it was impossible to sneak up on you when you were much younger. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting how, how you know, no matter wh where you are in life, really affecting how your your mindset towards school is. Right but, down to uh, right down to school supply shopping, where like you know, as a kid, it's like an event, right? Even as you get older, it's right, less of right. an event, but you definitely do it. And like in college, like on the way out the door for class number one, I'm like, I guess I'll use this half used spiral notebook that I've had for six years that has dust on it. Like, I guess I'll just take that with me. I guess that'll be what I'm using this, this semester. And so that was, <laughs> it was not quite the event that it used to be. Well, for, uh, for everyone that's uh, looking ahead to, to the start of college, uh, we, uh, 
you know, we're, we're excited for you. Hopefully, uh, you know, if you're, if you're getting back into that, you're, you're looking up at your, your books, like, like Joe said, you gotta, gotta find out what you're doing. <laughs> gotta make sure you got the right textbooks. Uh, gotta make a decision on the textbooks, but, uh, yeah, good, good luck to everyone that's, uh, that's doing that here. The baseball America college podcast, we're, we're going to start our look, uh, at, at fall and, 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 looking ahead already to uh, to the 22 season, uh, like I said, with Cal State Fullerton, which is, is an interesting team this year, uh, just by basis of, uh, of there being a new coach. So all, always an interesting time. Uh, but at Fullerton, this is the, the first time in, in a decade that they'll, they'll be in this position with a new coach. And Jason Dietrich coming to Cal State Fullerton, coming back to Cal State Fullerton, where he previously was the pitching coach uh, from East Carolina, where he spent the last few seasons as pitching coach. And now looking to, to restore Fullerton to its, uh, its place in the, near the top of, of the big West and, and in the, the, you know, just the, the overall pecking order of, uh, of college baseball Fullerton, of course, a storied program, uh, but has missed the last couple NCAA tournaments, uh, now after making 27 in a row. So a little bit of a rebuild required there at Fullerton. And so very excited to, to get into what that means, uh, with Jason Dietrich and, and what his thoughts are and, and how he's been attacking his new job here over the, the last few months. So we're going to get into all of that and more uh, with Cal State Fullerton coach Jason Dietrich here in a second. But first, check this out. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by new Cal State Fullerton coach Jason Dietrich, who took the job this, uh, this summer coming over after a long career as an assistant coach, most recently at East Carolina, but also Oregon, Fullerton, a few other stops along the way. So, Coach, we're uh, we're excited to have you here, and uh, you know, just uh, be able to talk a little bit of uh, Cal State Fullerton baseball. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to catching up with you guys and breaking down some Fullerton baseball with you guys. All right. So, let's just start with with what Fullerton is, I guess, and. and it has a really strong tradition in, in the baseball world. A lot of really proud alumni throughout the game, college, pro ball, all levels, really. What does it mean to you now to be the head coach of, of Cal State Fullerton? Well, it means a lot. It's, uh, first of all, it's very, you're very blessed and you're very humbled for this great opportunity. Uh, opportunities like this are what you work for um, when you choose a profession and to have this opportunity presented to myself and my family, it was something that we we're, like I said, we we're very blessed and humbled. And we're excited. We're excited. You know, like I said, had a chance to work here in the past, grew up around the program. So I've seen a lot with the programs entailed through the years. Uh, so, again, I didn't play here, but I had a chance to coach here. And I, like you said, man, the tradition, the people here, the alumni, there's a lot of pride in this program. And the expectation is always at a high level. And so that's the things that we're, we're going to work on as a staff is to continuously improve, to get to where we know what Cal State Fullerton baseball is all about. You know, I've heard it said before that, you know, as a head coach, this being your, your first crack at this, you know, as a head coach, you are kind of the sum of, you know, the experiences you've had before and coaches you've worked under and the list of, of coaches you've worked under is, is an impressive one. Um, what stands out to you as what you're taking from those experiences and specific instances of things you learned along the way from some of those coaches you worked under that, that you're ready to employ now? 
Well, I think it's just, you know, I've been blessed to be around two Hall of Fame coaches, uh, probably a third one in Rick Vanderhoek, but working for Mike Gillespie at UC Irvine for five years, uh, just kind of how he was a big believer in staff and fellowship and hard work, uh, identifying a team and then really uh, working hard in the details of practice. And that's what Coach Horton was, just his attention to detail um, was amazing to learn from him and how he interacts with people, his mind, uh, his baseball IQ, who he is as a person. Uh, again, just the man is about respect and you just respect him for who he is. And just to see how he go about, goes about his business was uh, understanding, especially behind the scenes. You know, when you're head coach, you don't recognize all this. And I'm recognizing it now, all the stuff I have to do. And then Rick Vanderhoek, obviously being around him, uh, how he teaches mentality, how much pride he took in the program at Fullerton. Uh, you know, he played here. So, again, there's a lot of things that you just watch and pay attention to. And then finishing up with Cliff Godwin, just, I mean, he's a man of passion, uh, honesty integrity, uh, just blue collar, hard work ethic, just to have those four guys in the division one realm when I was coaching, uh, it's helped me understand what it takes. Now it's just my turn to, you know, figure this out and I'll probably make some mistakes along the way, but it's not going to be because I did it on purpose because maybe it just happened, but I'm going to continuously work hard to figure out what's right and, and do that stuff. And those are things that I'm excited for. And, and I, I feel confident in all the things I've learned from all those guys. And, and again, to have those four guys uh, teach me, mentor me, was huge in uh, helping me be ready for this moment. One of the things, uh, maybe the thing people think about the most with Fullerton is, is Augie Garrido, the way he built that program, won there. Um, I, what, what kind of – you didn't play there, like like you said, and, and you coached under, under – Rick Vanderhoek, not under uh, Coach Garrido, but what kind of relationship did you have? You, you've coached with a lot of guys who, who did play for him and, and coached with him. And, uh, you know, what does what continuing his legacy mean to you and, and to the rest of the program? Well, it means a lot. Uh, I, I've, I've met Augie in the past a couple of times. I wish I could have had uh, conversations with him in depth just to pick his brain. But I've heard so many stories about him from alumni from when I was working here at Fullerton, working with Coach, you know, Coach Horton, uh, just talking to people that, again, had the experience, what, what he did from kind of the ground zero here and laid that foundation is what a lot of people take pride in because the work he put in and how he was a motivator, but also a great outside-the-box thinker, uh, attention to detail, just kind of teaching the game of baseball at a high level. And he did with guys that, you know, with, with the minimal budget. So he's just doing it with guys that had a passion for the game. And I think that's what a lot of people, I think, take – from the from Fullerton is guys that wanted to play hard and do things that maybe got overlooked when you know those years in the 70s and 80s of the supposedly bigger schools and he took those guys and made them believe in themselves and he taught them the game of baseball and that continuously carried over and then when he won the first national championship then the belief started coming more because he still found those same guys but maybe once in a while get a little more talented guys that had the same belief and I think he got this thing going at a high level and then to kind of pass the baton when you know Coach Horton was working for him. And then he took over and did an unbelievable job. So yeah, you know, to go back to Augie Garrido, that's what that's what the challenge is, and that's what you you know you're walking into is because he laid that foundation. So there's a lot of pride and expectation, and and I respect that, and I'm very grateful. And that's what he's in it. Hopefully, you know, he's looking down and appreciating the work that we're going to put in as a staff. Yeah, one thing that I think I know Teddy and I can speak just having noticed. I'm sure coaches like yourself have felt it. And especially with you being in a, in a new role right now that the last really since the season ended, it feels like a little bit of a whirlwind and the, the calendar in baseball has, I think exacerbated that a little bit where, you know, you were part of an ECU team that made a deep run 
in the postseason and that gets done, you take the job at Fullerton and you turn around and it's the draft. And I know now you're managing recruiting and maybe some transfer portal stuff and this and that and the other on top of you just trying to, you know, get comfortable in your new, 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 uh, new surroundings as familiar as they are. So what are the last six weeks or so been like for you? I can imagine the word whirlwind is probably a, a decent one to describe it. It is a decent one. It, it has been because I've been back and forth with North Carolina. My family's still back there. So the transition um, is something that as a family, we've, we're working on to figure out how we're going to get the family out here. Because like I said, when everything happens so quick, when we picked up and went all the way you know, to Greenville, North Carolina, it's 2,400 miles. It's not easy just to pick up and come back here. So there's a lot of things that factor in that equation. But that's the sacrifices we make as a family. And those are things that we're going to continuously move, move forward with and be thankful for. Then you're right. Then it's coming here, just assessing the roster, then get a higher assistance. And that takes time with the California state system. It's just the way it works. So again, it's just, it was, you know, it's just myself and it was the director of operations here. And then all of a sudden you get another, our first assistant, Neil Walton. Then last week we had our second assistant, Josh Belofsky. So it just takes time. And then now we have some manpower. So we're, you know, addressing what, you know, we're working on the fall, the 2022, know, our schedule, uh, working on admissions, make sure all the guys are good getting in. Like you're saying, the recruiting piece. Uh, then, you know, like I said, just the medical stuff. They got to get ready. We start in two weeks from today is our first day. So we're going to make sure housing is taken care of. There's all these little pieces. And then you talk about your future recruits, you know, talking to those commits and going to see them play. So there's a lot of things, as you can imagine, that are going on. And you're just continuously working hard to kind of minimize them, uh, attack them the best you can, and keep on moving to little tasks, get the little tasks done, and, and, and know the big picture that, as soon as you get the things going the direction you want, then, then again, it'll just take care of itself. But, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be done and, and not having been in the seat, you first time sitting in it, you see that it's just, you got to make sure you're addressing everything and doing it the best you can, but you can't just do it fast. You got to take your time and do it right. To take a step back here for a second, ECU this year, you guys had had a fantastic season there in the American Pitching staff was a large part of that. You, of course, uh, were, were leading that. And, you know, Gavin Williams is great. And we can talk about Gavin Williams. But one of the things that stood out to me was, you know, you have four game weekends th this last year in, in the conference. And um, you guys just had so much depth in the bullpen, but also in the rotation to, to be able to attack that. How did you go about building that? Uh, you know, obviously that's a multi-year process. But then, you know, once the four game weekends get foisted on you this year, you probably really had to, to accelerate uh, the kind of depth that, that you were going to require on a weekend. Yeah. And that's the one thing, you know, obviously that you got to tip your hat to Cliff Godwin, Jeff Palumbo and Dan Roselle, who's a previous pitching coach uh, for all their recruiting and their efforts they put in to assemble, you know, the roster they assemble because those guys are relentless in recruiting and they're great at evaluating talent and finding the right players that fit that program. And that's the one thing that I was very thankful for because I felt that my mindset's, very similar to their mindset and how to go about business and doing things at the level that's expected. So to walk in there and it was, it was kind of second nature for me and to see kind of all the things that they did and to have the staff, like you're saying, we didn't have, you know, I thought we'd be good the, the COVID year too, but we had a lot of returning guys that were older that we felt, you know, sometimes you have older guys, you, you feel not, you felt confident, but you still have that. Okay. Well, they have to establish themselves and go do out there and perform. But when you have older guys that can help the younger guys, that's what I felt was a big piece of the puzzle that we had and they helped the younger guys understand the importance of doing everything and staying with the moment and to overcome outings. Maybe they struggle in, but yeah, it was just Gavin Williams. We had a lot of guys that were, that were, you know, Cam Colmore, Matt Bridges, or just, you know, Tyler Smith, 
you know, Jake Kuchmander. They're, they're all older guys that had chance to do the best they could, give everything in contact. They love ECU, but they, they were great examples. You know, they, they led by example and they helped all the younger guys. When you have that and it's, you know, the players leading, it's, it's, it's easier as a coach to stand back and make sure you're doing what you, you can do to help them. But that's what's so special about ECU. Uh, Coach Godwin, you know, he does a great job with culture and creating that. And that's what the guys do a great job of and taking pride in. And so, like I said, that's where I felt the staff did a good job. They really picked each other up. Uh, they were consistent. The older guys, like I said, were very consistent. And the younger guys, through the ups and downs, they kept grinding away. And uh, when opportunity presented itself, they, they did the best they could. And I think that's, that's because of their preparation. That's because of all the guys surrounding them, you know, helping them uh, get better was good stuff. Teddy mentioned that, uh, you know, we could talk about Gavin Williams. I actually think I would like to talk about Gavin Williams a little bit because I think, you know, a funny thing, like, obviously, I, I don't need to tell you this, Coach, but, I mean, late in the season, I don't think a lot of people caught up to just how good he was last year. And some of that's maybe because he rehabbing early in the year and he wasn't in the rotation to start. He just kind of jumped in in conference play. But, you know, if, if you talk about on a rate basis in terms of K per nine or whatever, like he was as good as choose your best guy in college baseball, essentially. Um what kind of development did you see from him that allowed him to, to do that? Because the stuff, stuff has never been in question with Gavin Williams. It was kind of some of the other stuff. So what did you see from him to make that, that last step to do what he did last year? I think it all started, um, you know, two years ago when I was over there, he, he wanted to go out there and show everyone he was made of um, the COVID year. And, you know, he had a kind of a freak little finger accident and then he was just getting back to where he wanted to. Then the season got halted and, then you're talking about the five-round draft. He didn't get picked. Uh, I think that kind of set something internally that started getting him to take a step back and how we can, um, you know, not motivate, but maybe it was motivation. It was something that, that, that got him going at a different level because he came back a different person in my mind. He worked hard in the weight room. He came up with a consistent routine. Uh, he started just really focusing on those small details, playing catch at a high level. Uh, doing, you know, figuring out his, his secondary pitches, tinkering with things, moving, you know, he's, he's being very coachable, but yet he was, he was open-minded and wanting to figure out how he can help himself. And he knew that he needed to make sure that he was growing too. I know how simple that sounds, but that's kind of what Gavin was. And then his fall was good. Uh, he had a little bit of setback, nothing crazy. And then uh, coming in the spring, same thing. Like when he started getting healthy, cause it's just, you know, it's just his body. Um, he was ready to go. And then when he came out and won relief appearance one weekend, we're like, wow, that's, that's different. That's like, he's attacking the globe. He's like 97, 99 and a one inning stint. And then it was just like, he just started gathering himself and started picking up momentum. And like I said, then the details are happening. We gave him a weekend start. And from there, I think he just took, he ran with it. He wanted it. He, he was hungry, man. And to see the mindset he had, he was different. Uh, every game day, it was, you could just say that, wow, it's his day. You can just watch him going about the way he's carrying himself, you know, listening to music, getting focused in and just walking around like, you know, I can't wait to get out there and give it my all for my teammates. And that all starts with not just going on that Friday, but it starts on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, leading up to Friday. And the work he put in was to me second to none. I mean, he trimmed up his body, lost weight, improved his flexibility. And I think that's just a testament to him wanting to show that he is one of the best. And he went about it like he was one of the best. And that's where he, I feel he got rewarded at the end, not just having an All-American year, but, you know, putting the team on his shoulders, as you saw. I mean, he was he was hyped up to face Rocker. He wanted to face him. I thought it was a great matchup. And I thought, I don't, personally, I thought he outpitched him. You know, before we, before we move on again, I just what was that, that weekend like in Nashville, seeing him go against 
against Rocker and then lighter behind him, just so much great pitching. There were like six runs in that whole super regional or something. Uh, just, just a, a really, what looked to the outside though, it was a sweep, like a pretty competitive, pretty fun super regional action. It was, it's obviously never fun when you're the short end of the stick, but at the end of the day, we believe that we could beat them and that's what you have to have that mindset. And we, we went in there with that mindset and uh, we thought rocker as you there, they were as well as advertised. I mean, they were, really good they both threw the ball really really well and and when you have that going that's always they say pitching and defense leads you to championships um we just you know we made a, a mistake or two or we just didn't do something uh, that they did and that's as you know it's the difference of winning and losing a ball game and it's not like we did it on purpose just a little thing here or there uh, allows for a run to score and you know like i said that we have to take advantage of any you know walks or errors or we didn't and it's just because they're good pitchers and then their back end of their guys did a great job. It was, it was a fun regional. Like I said, it was competitive. It was high energy. It was like, for me, it was like a heavyweight fight. We were getting out there. We were going at them. They're going at us. And it's just, you know, who's going to break. And we unfortunately just couldn't take advantage of some situations. And that's the difference, you know, of what you preach to your team, of why you do all the work you do leading up to that moment from, you know, starting from summer going into the to spring season of, that's why you do all those things to help them be mentally and physically prepared uh, for games like that. And we gave our best effort at the end of the day. It was, it was a little short, but I was proud of uh, the way our team competed and the way we went about it. Now the, the, the program you're taking over here is one that is, is uh, not, uh, is very familiar with these, those types of heavyweight fights in the, in the postseason in, in Cal state Fullerton. So I'm curious if you, you know, you look at the historic success of that, program and then you you kind of look at the way college baseball has has changed so rapidly just i mean it's a completely different sport in a lot of different ways and, and based on what it was 15 20 years ago um in, in what ways are the ways that fullerton kind of got to the mountaintop uh you know back in history still repeatable today or are there other maybe ways in which you know you have to change a little bit to get cal state fullerton back to the point where it's competing uh for national titles consistently i'm curious for your your kind of thoughts on that well, I, I, again, it's, it, the program had a, a rough year last year, and they look like the COVID year. They're starting off a little bit not in the direction they wanted to go. Uh, that's just, you know, sometimes it's baseball. Sometimes Fullerton is kind of renowned to start off a little slow and pick up steam because they have a challenging schedule. They want to challenge the players, and that's part of the equation is get them to put them in tough, hostile environments so they can experience it and learn from it. Um, but that's just part of what this program has been. You know, again, college baseball, it has it's changed. You know, it's different. You've seen all the – the backing, the funding that people are putting in their facilities and what have you. But Fullerton, just because you have maybe one or one and a half years of just a little bit of struggles, uh, I, I don't think that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, how do you disregard or push aside uh, the overall uh, work that this program has done with all the coaches and assistants here? Of, I mean, they were just in Omaha in 2017 and they were in a super regional in 18. So they still can do it here. Everyone understands, that, you know, when you go to Omaha 18 times as a program, it's not a fluke thing. It's just people respect the program. That's where our job is. The new staff is not to do anything crazy, just to go out there and continuously recruit the players that we feel uh, have always been what they what Fullerton has been. And that's, you know, blue collar, play hard, uh, want to develop, obviously some athleticism, but guys that, you know, are, are wanting to put forth the best effort and a coaching staff that should give them everything they can to work. Because as you know, there's tons of players in California. And as you're seeing, a lot of programs throughout the, you know, the nation are come to recruit here it's our job to work that much harder to keep them keep them in our backyard or keep them in the state of california so it's just a matter of getting back in that recruiting trail and identifying the players we can and i'm very thankful for the coaching staff that we have that we're going to go out uh, go out there and 
and bring the players that we know that that appreciate the program, but also want to be a part of getting the program going the direction that we know it can. You mentioned one of the things that they do so well at ECU is they know the kind of style of player that works for them, that works with Cliff, and they go out and, and they get those guys. I think that's probably kind of what you're saying here with, with, with Fullerton, that you need to identify those those kinds of players. So did you learn s- some stuff uh, in Greenville that, that you can apply here? And and how do you go about trying to go from, okay, the, the state of California is immense and there's a ton of talent in Southern California, but these are the play. These are the Fullerton players. Yeah. It's just doing your homework. And that's the one thing that uh, coach Godwin coach, coach, you know, Jeff Palumbo were really good at. They contacted so many people to get the inside information and the people that I trust to know exactly who the individual is. And that's the one thing that I feel uh, that we have to do at a high level is continuously. Obviously we have a lot of relationships and in, in, out here in California, but also utilize the people that we know that are going to give us the right information on who that individual is, um, their makeup, their character, that, that goes a long way. And in, in us, it's not just talent. Talent obviously is important, but if they're not a good teammate and they don't do things right, uh, sometimes you're going to have some issues in the clubhouse. And that's the things that can separate uh, a great team to, to being an average team. So those are things that we, we, we identify as a staff and that's our coaching. That's our kind of a recruiting philosophy, what we believe in those things I took away from those guys. They just reiterated what I, I, I believe uh, you know, Coach Palumbo is the recruiting coordinator, and he's unbelievable at what he does. He's so detailed, uh, and he he is nonstop on the phones, uh, identifying talent out there, then working hard to get to know those guys or getting to know who they are. But, you know, that's just the difference of why the, that program to me is because those guys, they work. They're relentless workers, and they do it, you know, because they have passion and pride for what they do and obviously for the program. So those things I take I took away and that's the stuff that we need to do at a high level and that we have to go out there and again, turn over rocks or do whatever it takes to find the right guys that we feel uh, this program and what we like to develop uh, can do. And if it uh, takes us longer than normal, we don't mind. We'll keep working to find the right guys. I think this is a little bit related because I, you know, one of the things about Fullerton that, that strikes me is that it, it really does have a pretty engaged and involved baseball alumni base. The guys who have been through the program, are very proud of that. Uh, they make no bones about that. They kind of stick around the program and both physically and just kind of in terms of um, being involved in the ways that they can. And, and you don't see that necessarily everywhere. So what is it about Fullerton that keeps those baseball alums so engaged, keeps them wanting to be involved all these years later? Because it's not just the guys who are out of it for a couple of years. It's guys who, who you know went to Fullerton several decades ago who are, who are very involved. What is it about that place? I think it's just the experiences they had here uh, and, the, and the relationships and friendships they've built. And they recognize, that, as we all do when we get older, we, we appreciate the things we do in life. And I think they, they, they appreciated what they went through, how the experiences they had. And they wanted to they set a bar and every year they want every team to shoot for that bar. And that's the pride that comes in. That's where the mindset mentality comes in of what this program is. And that's where I think the alumni have so much pride in is because it is a high standard and yes, it's a mid-major in people's eyes, but that's why it's so special because they never looked at it going, well, yeah, no one knows that, you know, those, some of those teams were changing in the parking lot to get ready before a game or after practice. Uh, it wasn't about having, you know, a huge facility, but, you know, things nowadays, the Fullerton's do everything they can to show that they, they have a ton of support for the program. That's what alumni care. It's not about having everything. It's having, you know, a place that they can call home. And if we can, help some things along the way with, you know, we got this brand new $16 million, you know, uh, facility being built for the coaches offices and the players 
clubhouse and what what have you and it take taken a while but you know it's because to show you that's that's part of the the piece but for all the alumni they they just i think they just care because of what they 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 shared here and how they experienced it and they want the the future players to have those same experiences because a lot of these guys are are really some of them are best friends in their lives and if not that just good friends in life and that's where i feel the alumni uh just experiences they had is why they they care so much about it you mentioned the facility upgrade that you guys are working on there as we record this on august 9 you guys released a video on social media kind of detailing some of that stuff but what can you tell us about uh you know about that that project that that's uh being worked on right now it's something that's you know like i said they started uh, I apologize. I wish I knew when. Uh, I'm not sure if it was early June, uh, maybe end of May. But um, they've been get. I mean, working hard at it. And it's, you know, we're seeing it in front of our eyes, kind of where it's going. And they feel it should be done hopefully in January, where everything inside, like I said, it has. It's going to have everything that we need. You know, all the coaches' office, player, you know, player lounge, uh, player meeting room, all the players, you know, clubhouse, showers, everything. You name it. It's just a whole. You know, we have our own and softball's getting their own too. So it's been great to see both projects getting done uh, at a high level and to have both, you know, our, we have a great softball program here and our program is to see the backing and support of the school and the athletic department of wanting us to continuously grow and compete at a high level. And that's why they're putting the money and the resources here. You've, uh, you've spent a fair amount of your career in the Big West. You're, you're back in it now. Uh, last year, Irvine won the title. UC Santa Barbara was, was kind of hot on their tail. Uh, Cal Poly next year returns with uh, with Brooks Lee, who figures to be uh, one of the best players in the country. As you kind of survey where things are at within the Big West, what, what do you see from the conference? And uh, do you feel like it's on a bit of an upswing um, now? Or, or just what, what are your overall thoughts as, as, as an outsider for the last um, five or six years from the conference returning to it now. Yeah. Having coached in it for nine years before I you know went to Oregon and ECU, you're always rooting for the conference because you know how there's a lot of pride in this conference too, where a lot of guys work hard and do things and they, they, they care. And when some years, I remember we were at Irvine, you know, we had three got three teams going into the, uh, you know, sometimes they, they one year is four teams going into the regional. So it's in here and it can be done that's where you're wanting it to be at a high level. When you saw two, you know, Santa Barbara and uh, Irvine go, and you're like, well, that's the way it should be. You know, I know they may put our conference in a certain level, but the, everyone works hard in this conference and there's a lot of great baseball minds and they're, they're They do a great job. They teach the game, they develop their players. And that's what we want it to be. We want it to be competitive because that means that we're, we're all growing and, and doing good things and to, to see where they're at and see the coaches that are here, like I said, doing a great job. That's the fun part. That's the challenge we all have to accept because there's been changes, but Santa Barbara's done well. Irvine's, you know, always going to be going in the right direction. You know, literally at San Luis Obispo does an unbelievable job. Eric Valenzuela at Long Beach is, you know, he's done a great job there and he's continuously going to challenge that. And, you know, there's other, you know, you got the two new schools uh, and Coach Hill's getting hired at Hawaii. So, there's a lot of things that are going on. There's a lot of, like I said, there's good teams in this league and that's what you should want because that's what you're, you know, you, that's going to help you when that time comes, when those regionals come and hopefully super regionals and moving on from there. So the, the conference is doing a good job, but a lot of, like I said, a lot of guys are, are relentless and they're working too. So I'm excited to see us continuously grow and get to the level. We are putting minimum two, if not three, possibly four into regionals again, because that's important to this conference.
So we'll wrap up here with a question that Teddy and I ask all of our guests on the podcast. And that's uh, for you to describe to us your favorite sandwich. And I will, I'll filibuster for a second. So you have a minute to kind of gather your thoughts here. But so we, we asked for your favorite sandwich and it could be a sandwich you make yourself that you make, make at home uh, something that, you know, someone in your family makes, it could be a favorite sandwich at some restaurant you go to that you particularly enjoy. So you can take it any direction you would like. We, we put no, uh, you know, no guardrails on this for you. So Jason Dietrich, please describe to us your favorite sandwich. Okay. This is, that's an interesting little, there's your two O curveball right here. That's right. Interesting. Good job. I like it. <laughs> and, and, and the, the crazy thing is this, and, and <laughs> I hate to say it, but I'm a very simple and plain person. Uh, I don't really like sandwiches are great and all. It's not a certain sandwich, but I'm a Philly cheesesteak guy. I really am. I really sure. like Philly cheesesteak. And so to me, and I, <laughs> my wife gives me a hard time, but I'm just the meat and cheese only. And if there's good Philly cheesesteaks, I'll make sure I find where they're at and I, and I will go hunt them down. And at times if I'm adventurous, then I'll add them to have to put the peppers and mushrooms or whatever. But for me, it's how simple I am. So if I find a good Philly cheesesteak, I'm going to, I'll ask around and see where I can go and, and make sure it's a good one. But it could be as simple as just the, the, the steak and the cheese on it to make me a happy man. I know it sounds very plain and boring and I apologize, but but that's something that, you know, like I said, those are the sandwiches I enjoy the most. If I can find I mean, one, hey, man, I'm on it. No apologies needed. I mean, this is your sandwich. We're asking you for your favorite sandwich. You don't have to apologize for anything. I, I was going to ask you a follow-up, but I think you kind of answered it there by just, you know, you you can go just meat and cheese. I wondered, one of the things about the Philly cheesesteak is there's like a sloppiness factor to it, right? So, like, some people really like the sloppiness where you've got to, like, lean over and make sure you're not getting stuff on your shirt. So, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the sloppiest, I was going to ask where you are on that scale. It sounds like you're probably like a little on the lower scale in terms of the sloppiness of it. Probably that, but it all depends. You know, you got the juices and how that meat tastes and the seasoning yeah. where they put on it and what kind of cheese they use and then kind of bread they use. Is it, you know, toasted? How fresh is that bread? So to me, it's like, those are the factors I like. If they over overdo it, then it's like, okay, I might need a fork here to, yeah. to make sure I'm eating everything. And yeah, it depends. Like some people are different. Some maybe, you know, if sloppy is a word, then, hey, that's the, you know, that's the case. Then I'm still going to enjoy it and hopefully not, not show that I'm enjoying it by having it on my clothes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Save it a little for later on your, on your shirt. Uh, quick follow-up food wise. Um, you know, you spent a lot, of, obviously most of your career on the West coast, you moved to Carolina for a couple of years. Did you enjoy, uh, to the extent you were able to try it, the Carolina style barbecue with kind of the mustard base, mustard and vinegar based sauce, as opposed to, to other kinds of sauces. Did, did you have much experience with that? Did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. You don't, you know, the one thing is different, like their barbecue is great. It's really good. That's the one thing you got to watch yourself with. That's why I was trying to walk a lot when I was there and do some exercise <laughs> because that food is so good. It's, yeah. you know, you're talking about some fried chickens and just like I said, the sauces and the meats and how they cook it um, and the, the different ways. It's, it's really, it's, it's, that's the one thing I, we don't have here in the West Coast. I can tell you that. So when I do go back to see family and see Coach Godwin and friends, uh, I'm making sure we do hit up some of the barbecue places. And that's one thing they don't have here. Obviously, they do have, we have here is, there's a lot of good Mexican food places here out in the West. And unfortunately there weren't as many um, in Greenville, North Carolina, which is not a bad thing. It's just, just a little difference. It's, yeah. It's one of the beauties of, it. I was going to ask if you had anything you're looking forward food wise being back on the West coast, are you an in and out guy? You, you mentioned the, you know, some of the, thing, the things you'll miss there, but are there other others that you're kind of looking forward to getting back to? It's just honestly the Mexican food. Uh, yeah, just growing up around them, there's so many different places. It's, it's cooked so differently that you find out those little, you know, the holes in them all, so to speak. And, 
you get to find those places and it's just that, that food is, is really good. And yeah, in and out, come on, you're never going to go wrong with that place. So yeah, no doubt. he's going to drive by there on occasion. Can't do it too much. You know I mean? The older we get, the tougher it is to, you know, try to take care of yourself. So that's right. You Doctor starts choose, to get on you. If you, you do that, can choose those battles, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I hear growing up in Texas. I hear you on the Mexican food thing. I still, I, I go, when I, when I go back home, it's like a week of Mexican food and then I feel awful for the next week, but it's worth it in the end. <laughs> you're, you're right. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we are looking forward to seeing Fullerton on the field this spring. Uh, looking to looking forward to seeing how how the program develops, and I am looking forward to some Mexican food. After all that talk, uh, I definitely co-sign the idea that North Carolina, not the Mexican food capital of the world, that's fine. But like, you got to go, got to go elsewhere for it. But we're uh, we're looking forward to seeing seeing you guys out there uh, sometime this spring, Coach. And we really appreciate you taking the time to to join us here today on the Baseball America College podcast. No, I appreciate it. Thanks again. What you guys do for college baseball is awesome. We're so thankful for all the work you put into it. So I appreciate you guys reaching out. And like I said, I look forward to seeing you. Please, uh, if you're on the West Coast, hit me up. Maybe I can uh, recommend some good Mexican food places for you. Thank you again to Cal State Fullerton coach Jason Dietrich for joining us. Busy time there uh, for him as, as he navigates all the all the things that, that come with taking over a program that first summer. Uh, definitely has to feel like you're drinking out of a uh, fire hose a lot of the time. Uh, so very, uh, again, very thankful he was to spend some time here with us talking about it. Uh, Joe, as, as, as we look at, at this Fullerton program that he's taking over. I mean, it's uh, exciting that he is back just given his pitching background, the the guys that he's helped develop. We talked about that at East Carolina, but it, it's been true throughout his career. And I, I think that kind of meshes well with, you know, the, what you think of Fullerton historically being a little more about pitching and defense, uh, at least in recent years. And, and so, you know, that, that, that does seem like a, a, a pretty clear path forward for the Titans. And now it's just going to be a matter of, of executing that. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you think about, you know, there's such a strong link with Cal state Fullerton and pitching, but if, if you think about the, the last time that Fullerton and their pitching staff really kind of blew you away and you were like, wow, this, you know, these guys can really pitch it. Um, you know, that was when Dietrich was the pitching coach there. Um, you know, all those staffs where it was like, man, this group, you know, it's a little bit light on stuff, but man, they throw strikes. They found, you know, they re really go after hitters. They're not going to give in. They're not going to walk guys. Um, that was his, his fingerprints were all over that. And so I, I do think there is a lot to feel positive about when it comes to that. And because that was really kind of the shocking thing about the last year's team with Cal State Fullerton is like, look, you know, Cal State Fullerton has had good teams that didn't have a lot of offense, right? I mean, they, they got to Omaha with some teams that were pretty light offensively. Um, and so I think we kind of go in expecting that to be the case, especially as the program has started to struggle a little bit, but last year, you know, it really kind of all caved in on them a little bit. I mean, it's really surprising to see a Cal state Fullerton team. All right. It starts with the number six, you know, that's just, um, it just hard to fathom. Honestly, you look at the stat sheet and it's just, you can't even imagine, you can't even um, process what you're, what you're seeing. And, you know, last year, Tanner Bybee had a pretty good year and that was really it. There wasn't really anybody else who stood out as, as being all that effective for them. So that, you know, perhaps against all odds and surprisingly, it's not like, you know, Dietrich's coming in to try to like continue that and, and maybe 
tinker with some things offensively to make it happen. Like there, there's some work that really needs to be done on the pitching side. And so their hope is that he can kind of recapture some of the, the magic that he had as pitching coach there. Not, not so far in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you, you, you look at what they have returning and they're going to have to, going to have to find some new players uh, for sure. But you know, it was it was interesting to hear him talk about you know at, at East Carolina, you know where he inherited a lot of the players that that you saw, um, you know, starring for the Pirates over the last couple of years, and was able to help them get better. So I mean, that, that's that's like obviously like the number one thing with coaching. I remember uh, Urban Meyer at, at some point. Um, in his career talking about how, you know, you, you can't just wait. You can't say like, wait until I get my recruits in here, the players that you inherited, those are your players. You it's on you to, to, to make them better. You, you can't just sit around and, and say like, well, you got to give me a year or two to, to get recruits here. And in baseball, it's probably even more acute because of the way the recruiting cycle works that, you know, you get hired, in June or early July, it's really too late to do anything more than maybe pick up a, a junior college player here or there, or now in t- today's world, maybe you can hit the transfer portal for a couple guys. Uh, but y- you can't do a whole lot. The high school players, those are, those are the guys that you have. And, you know, you're going to have to, you know, wait a whole, you, you have to go through the first season before you can even begin to think about like, looking at, at your own high school recruits entering the program. And you know, so, so you have to, you just have to work with what, what you have to begin with. And so I, I think that that's a, an encouraging thing, seeing what he's able to do with Gavin Williams, uh, you know, with some of the other players at East Carolina to help them develop to a, where they, they can be real impact arms and, and develop a, an incredible staff top to bottom at East Carolina this season. Uh, like like we talked about, I I think that's maybe the the most exciting thing to me about uh, him taking over in the immediate term. In the long term, you know, you can start looking at you know he, he, the way he talks about you're trying to find the right players, and you know, yes, there are a lot of players in California, but but we have to find the the right players for Fullerton, and, and that's going to be exciting to to watch as as they you know go through that process. But but in the immediate term, I'm very interested to to see what he does with the pitchers that, that are already on the roster. Yeah, agreed. And I think in, in that way, until he mentioned it, I hadn't really thought of it this way. And this is a comparison that Cal State, the Cal State Fullerton faithful, you know, one of the most storied programs in the history of college baseball, fans of, of that program are not necessarily going to love the comparison probably, but as they're currently constructed, you know, I think East Carolina and Fullerton are similar in that way where they're, they are development programs. Like they do get really good players in recruiting. They can get really good players in recruiting, but at their core, they are going to be outfits that are developing guys. And I think sometimes with Fullerton, there's this mystique around it. And I think sometimes that actually ignores the fact that there's actually been a lot of really talented players that have come through that program. Like there are still tons of big leaguers who went to Cal state Fullerton. But I think the point they're making is that, yes, they, they do, they have gotten those players in the past, but fill it in around those are a lot of really good program players that maybe, you know, weren't stars their first couple of years that developed into stars as time went on. And they were nice complimentary pieces around 
two or three cornerstones that had been recruited to be the cornerstones of those teams. And I think East Carolina is kind of similar in, in terms of that, where, you know, they, they, again, they bring in some good players, guys like, you know, um, Packard and, and Brickhouse several years ago, those were immediate impact like stars and those were real dudes in the recruiting process. But then they fill in around those guys with guys who were lesser recruited, more local recruiting because, they are not East Carolina, for example, not the national brand UNC is. They get a little more local player. Cal State Fullerton, kind of the same way. They, you know, they recruit where they're at. You know, they really are where their feet are in terms of recruiting um, and bringing those guys in. So that the fact that he brought that up really kind of struck me as interesting because I I had not considered that in the past. That you know what the those are both programs that have to be very specific about the types of guys they want because they are not programs, even with all of Fullerton's history at this point in time, they are not the program that really gets the, the pick of the litter in terms of Southern California recruits. And that would probably always be true when you're living in a world where, you know, UCLA is also trying to get in there uh, to say nothing of the brand that is USC to the extent that it's a, a baseball brand, but also, Oh, by the way, every other program in America is also kind of dabbling in California a little bit. Um, that makes life harder still. So it's a program that's going to have to pick and choose their guys. And like and the whole big West, the whole right. big West isn't so Cali. And, and like, yes, Fullerton is, is one of, if not the biggest brand in the big West, but there's just competition. I mean, you gotta, gotta go up against Long Beach and, and, and Irvine and Northridge and Cal Poly and, and, and all the rest of these schools that are, that are there trying to, trying to get there. It's a very crowded market. And um, yes, Fullerton, you know, still still carries a lot of weight, uh, but it, you gotta you gotta convince the kids to go there anyway. And uh, so it's uh, it, it's going to be a challenge for for that new staff to to attack and and to uh, to go after. But but you can do it there. And you know, like we talked about, they've got some new facilities, um, you know, working through, and uh, that's important. It's not an easy thing to accomplish in uh, in California always to to get those those facility investments and it's just a long process to go through and you know so that that's a, a big thing for the program as well. Um, and we talked a little bit in there about the Big West as a whole and it trying to get back to to where it is it it, it has been historically and you know he's coming into the Big West at a bit of a challenging time here. Um, Fullerton had such an iron grip on the top of the Big West for so long, but that hasn't really been true the last few years, obviously, as, as Fullerton has um, you know, slipped and, and, and missed the tournament. Uh, clearly, they've seeded the, the top spot, but you, you see Irvine coming in this year, and, and they had a fantastic season, and they're going to run back much of that roster next year. Um, you, you see Cal Poly, uh, they finished second like three years in a row before this year. And next year we'll have the best player in the Big West in Brooks Lee. Uh, so exciting times there. Santa Barbara has become consistently uh, one of, if not the best program in the conference over the last five years under Andrew Chekets. Long Beach is, uh, is resurgent under Eric Valenzuela. I mean, there's just a lot going on there. And, and now Fullerton is going to have to find a way to, to scrap back to the, uh, to the top of the conference. Yeah, it's, I mean, Big West has taken a lot of lumps, including on this podcast. We, you know, we've, we've been very blunt about the state of the Big West. And it's, it's, it does seem like there is a little bit of um, forward momentum there, you know, for the conference. You mentioned some of the, the specific situations that would, that would lead us to believe that. I, you know, I'd be interested to know 
you know, what happens if, what happens if Fullerton really gets cooking again? Like, I think that would be interesting from a big West standpoint, because I, I've always been fascinated by the idea of, and I looked into this a little bit like la- this time last year when I was going conference by conference and taking, you know, five years worth of data and extrapolating it out, doing all that kind of number crunching. And I, I did a, a little bit of a deeper dive in the big West. And it, it struck me the point where that, you know, when Fullerton was really fully operational, was really cooking, it was just hard for any of the other big West programs to get oxygen. And it hasn't been that long since Fullerton, for example, has been to, to Omaha, but nobody would argue those teams were as good as the ones we saw at Fullerton in 04 or 2010 or what have you. And so I'd be curious to know if, if five years from now we look up and Dietrich's really got that thing going, like, what does the big West look like? Does that steal oxygen from the others in the, in a world where players are being siphoned off? to other parts of the country and, and aren't necessarily just staying home by default in a way they might've in previous eras. That, that'll be fascinating to me because I do wonder if, you know, the big West has been able to, to take advantage of the fact that Fullerton has not been, I think that's inarguable. The fact that Fullerton's not been fully operational has allowed the big West to other teams to kind of elbow their way in there. But what happens if Fullerton does snap back? Cause that is very much on the table with as much history as they have. Uh, if they snap back, does this continue for the big West as a whole, or do we kind of go back to, okay, it's Fullerton and who's the second best team out here this year. Um, rather than it looking like, Hey, you know, there's actually four or five really interesting teams here in the big West that, that could, we could conceivably see making runs. And um, that's something we'll just have to let play out. Yeah. I, I would be kind of surprised right now if, uh, if it went back to that, it's certainly anytime soon. I just, the way Santa Barbara has, has, you know, amped up the way that Ben Orloff has hit the ground running as head coach at, at Irvine, the way that, that Long Beach State, you know, invested in Blair Field, and now the way Eric Valenzuela has begun his tenure there, I, I just don't know that there's reason to believe that these programs fade, fade away. Um, you know, so that could mean a resurgent big West with, you know, as, as those programs continue to gain momentum and and Fullerton, uh, you know, gains momentum under Jason Dietrich, uh, that, that'll be very interesting to, to, to follow. And like, is that, how possible is that in, in the current climate? You know, we've talked a lot about how the headwinds are against conferences like the big west in college sports overall and you know is uh is it you know where where can they go from here and and that that's going to be very interesting to 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 see over over the next several years but i i do think that at least right now it looks like the there's a lot of momentum in the conference at least in certain parts of of the the conference. So now how, how do they begin to capitalize on that? And uh, a resurgent Fullerton would, would absolutely be a part of that. It's definitely a, you know, I try to shy away from the genuflection around coaches because I, I think, well, yes, over time we do find out which ones, Hey, this guy's really good at this, whether it's because he's had sustained success at one place or has gone multiple places and had success. But I think sometimes the difference between coaches we would define as like doing a really good job and coaches that are not doing a good job is, a really, really thin, but also not really clear um, because a lot of things can, can happen to affect wins and losses. And it's not good. Coaching is not just wins and losses, even though that's the way laymen um, and even people like you and I, because we're not in the program every day, that tends to be the way we judge it. 
I say all that to say, it does seem like a really inspired group of coaches in the Big West right now. It feels like a lot of really good fits. Um, you know, whether you talk about, you know, Valenzuela seems like exactly the right guy at Long Beach. And we had him on the podcast last year. And I came away from that feeling even more strongly. So like early results for Ben Orloff, great. Obviously he's a, you know, a UC Irvine guy and, um, you know, really close to, to uh, our friend Dave Serrano, who, who worked with us at Baseball America back in 2019. Like he, you know, really tied in there. He's done a really good job having Dave at Cal State Northridge. I think it's great for that program. He knows what it takes to win in the big West, you know, um, Rich Hill over at Hawaii, which is what Jason Dietrich mentioned on the podcast. I mean, it's a guy who had a lot of success in San Diego. That's a really interesting hire out there. And I'm sure he'll enjoy the surfing out there. There's no doubt about that, but it just seems like the, that's not a, a, um, criticism of the previous iteration of coaches we saw in the big West necessarily, but I, I do think it is a pretty inspired group of coaches, a, a good round of hiring the big West has made. And I think that's becoming, and of course I, I miss check it's in that list there, but that goes without saying, but and I do think that's a lot of what's propelling this for. It's a younger group. It's an energetic group. I think it's a group that's really proud to be part of this big West lineage, which I think is important, has a lot of pride in that. Um, and I think it's showing in the results. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what happens. I'm, I'm hopeful for the sake of, because I think college baseball and you would agree is, is better when we've got geographic diversity and, and who is, um, you know, who's run, really running the sport. So I think the big West returning to something, um, you know, a little more um, national, I think would be good for the sport. I'm, I'm also highly curious about how, how the big West and the PAC 12 like work together here. So you know, if, if the Pac-12 were to, you know, right, right now the Pac-12 is in a bit of flux with, there's just been a lot of turnover in recent years. The Arizona programs both just turned over, both Oregon programs turned over just a few years ago, USC turned over. Um, Cal and Stanford did, if you go back a, a few more years, Washington State, now Utah. Uh, I mean, Lindsey Meggs is now far and away the longest tenured coach in the con. Well, I, I guess he and John Savage, uh, both you know the 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 two longest tenured coaches in the conference. I, Lindsey Meggs definitely after Savage, but the two of them are 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 like the Denzians. And Dave Esker's been in the league a long time. He just moved from Cal to Stanford, uh, but the rest of the league is has been has been turned over now. And where, where does, where does the PAC 12 get? How quickly does it find its footing? And then what does that mean for, for the big West? Because, you know, that, that, the, there is some, some competition for players there. And if the PAC 12, if these new coaches really find all of their footing and, you know, look, Oregon had a really good year this year and, and Arizona was just in the world series under Jay Johnson, just because they have a new coach now doesn't mean that you know they're going to take a big step back or anything. But if uh, if the Pac-12 really gets going, how does that affect the the Big West or, or and vice versa? So uh, just an interesting time out west to to be sure with with all of the that that turnover and and like you said, a, a younger group of of Big West coaches by and large. Although I mean. Hires like Dave Serrano and, and Rich Hill don't really fit the younger demographic, but uh, they, they are new uh, to uh, to the conference, at least. That was my favorite of Dave. We, we got you, Dave. We counted you as a younger coach. 
you're you're welcome on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're right on the West Coast. It is interesting because it, it is a closed system, and obviously more so last year for COVID reasons and scheduling and whatnot. But even just in general, you know, it's those because they are so far out there. You know, it's part of it. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's yeah, a I mean, similar midweek games are are going to be against those schools yep. almost completely. Yep, you mix in some WCC here and there, you know, and but um, it's a close pretty in terms of the players they're recruiting. You know, they're all kind of vying for the same types of players at the same schools. And even if you go outside of the SoCal footprint, I mean, you look at Oregon's roster, you're seeing a lot of California. Um, you know, the Arizona schools, you're seeing a lot of California. So, um, yeah, that, that is interesting because more so than other, you know, other areas of the country, uh, those conferences, I think, I think you're right. I do think you see some. Um, you know, it kind of works a little bit um, like that, where you can take advantage of another conference being up or down or, or what have you. So it'll be interesting to see uh, see where that all goes. Uh, definitely going to be following the Titans uh, as uh, as Jason Dietrich, you know, gets uh, gets things going there in his first season here in uh, in 2022. All right, Joe. Uh, also today we want to uh to talk about your your stock watch series which is wrapping up here you you looked at you went team by team and the the biggest conferences around the country looked at how their their 2021s went and uh you know said stock up or stock down uh based on this season uh always always a good time to be looking through those so as uh as you wrap that up i know you you found some observations that that you want to uh to to bring to the podcast today so let's uh I'll, I'll let you take it away there. All right. So I'll set it up for our listeners a little bit. Like, so basically what I'm going to do is Teddy has not, has not heard these. So I went through conference by conference. So I've got the power five plus the American, and then I've got a couple of stray uh, mid-major ones um, that I will throw out there along the way. Um, so I'm going to kind of go, I went back through and I found something from every conference, at least one thing. There's a couple of times where there's a stray second thought there, but that, we kind of glossed over things that maybe we didn't notice in the moment because we were more focused on stuff that, that frankly was more relevant or was more in our face at that moment. That now as I'm going back and looking at the conferences, I kind of go, huh, that's interesting. Like I, I hadn't really noticed that. So I'm going to pose them to Teddy and Teddy is either, you know, can take them and run with them and we'll have a little back and forth. Or, you know, I would also be perfectly fine if his response was, huh, yeah, that is, that is interesting, but uh, I don't have anything to add there because I do think some of these, uh, that's where the discussion could end on some of these is, huh, neat. And then we move on. So I'm, I'm willing to allow for that as well. So we'll go in a little bit of, um, I guess, alphabetical order here with the mid-majors coming last. So um, start with the American. Um, we, we spent a decent amount of time lamenting the, the state of the American in, in last season. And of course, South Florida's postseason run really, I don't want to say saved it, but it really did kind of give them a little something to hang their hats on. And I think South Florida is a program that's interesting uh, as, as early as next year, just because that was a pretty young team, actually. So there is that. And of course, we have East Carolina out there. But um, I was interested in Cincinnati's season, though, um, short term and long term. In the short term, they went 18 and 14. And I know you could do this with like every team around the country is if you take out their handful of hardest games, their record looks even better. But they started off American play. And I was there for a part of this series. They started off their uh, American play with a four game sweep at the hands of East Carolina on the road. And they weren't really competitive, frankly. So after that, they went 18 and 10 
in American conference play. And I think it's kind of fascinating, not just from the single season standpoint, where that was a really nice season for Cincinnati, but this is a program that when they came into the American went six and 18 in their first two seasons in the conference. And I think it was kind of right to wonder if like, boy, uh, you know, are they really cut out for this level? Kind of same questions we've asked about like a Utah in the PAC 12, for example. But since that point, they've really steadied the ship there. And it started out, you know, Ty Neal, the previous head coach, had a couple of nice seasons. But Scott Guggen, since he came over from Crosstown Xavier, has really done a nice job, got him to a regional in 2019. And now they've, they've reached a point where I don't know that I would ever bet on Cincinnati being the type of team in the conference as good as the American, typically as good as the American. To be consistently in at-large contention, they still yet to have, be an at-large team or have one even really in contention. But like they have reached a point now where I think we just kind of have to assume they're going to find a way to put a pretty competitive team on the field because that's that's been what they've been for the last four or five years at this point. Yeah, so the thing with UC is that they drew the short end of the stick last year uh, and they had to play UCU eight times. They went, they went one in seven in those games. And I mean, one in nine if you throw in their, their game in the tournament. And I mean, to your point, like, 18 and 14 with eight of your games coming against the by like far and away the best team in your league like that. Uh, that feels pretty good. You know, that's 17 and seven against the rest of the, the group. Um, there was a time when uh, and they, they've been historically good in the American tournament under under Scott Guggins. Um, they went to and Q this year. I don't know what kind of cue you're getting in um, Clearwater, Florida, but anyway, you know, two and Q. Uh, but there was a time that they were beating UCF, and um, in the they had a big early lead, as I recall, against UCF in, in their first game. And I like was doing some research about how good they had been in the tournament under Scott Coogan's. Obviously, I that research all went for naught. But the point is, they have been it. Like he is a great tournament coach. Like he did a really good job of Xavier in the Big East tournament. He's already shown that he can do a pretty good job with UC in the American tournament. And let's not forget the last time they made the NCAA tournament, 2019, uh, they were the ones that knocked out Oregon State. So, or they upset Oregon State anyway. I don't remember if it was the elimination game or not. But anyway, they they play really well in, the, in these big games. It, it They're always, I shouldn't say always, they're likely to be at a talent disadvantage with the ECUs and Tulane's of the American. But no, I, I, I do think that this is going to be a consistently feisty team in the American going forward. Uh, that's kind of what they've been already, but I, I don't see that changing. And, you know, that's kind of what Xavier was in the Big East. Every year I would do the Big East preview and I would be like, well, you know, okay, St. John's probably has more talent. And look at Creighton, they're really good. But you know what? Xavier's going to make everyone's lives difficult. They're going to be in the tournament, which in the Big East is only a four-team affair. And you know what? They might win the thing because that's just how it works there. So it's harder to win the American. Uh, it's harder to win the American tournament since they take all eight teams. But I, I think that there's a, there's a lot to be said uh, for what Cincinnati is doing in a league that, frankly, it has no business. I mean – we're talking about two schools in Florida, Houston, Tulane, East Carolina. Like, what is Cincinnati doing being this good? But that Scott Guggins is a is really good at what he does. Yeah, that's um, 
Yeah. I mean, it, like I said, it was, it was the kind of deal where you thought, boy, that's, you know, that could go really poorly for Cincinnati when they came in the league and then had a couple of, a couple of tough years, but they've done a really nice job there. They've got some things working for them. I mean, Cincinnati is not, it's not the hotbed that USF or UCF gets or Houston whoa, gets. Whoa, but, whoa, but, Ohio <laughs> high school baseball is fantastic. And uh, Cincinnati is, uh, is pretty good. You know, Andrew Benintendi. You know, you're right. I, I actually read something the other day about Cincinnati being the uh, central prep baseball hotbed in the country. You know, it was, a, it was ahead, of, ahead of SoCal and Central Florida, and, you know, things like that. But no, yeah, I, I, I mean, people will tell you about Dallas or whatever, but, you know, it's... It's more like it's in Ohio. It's all about Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they do have that going for them. Like it, it is a place where there are talented players that I, I actually do believe that it is kind of like a, like one of those like low key hotbeds that kind of gets overlooked. Uh, there are a lot of people that live in that region, Cincinnati and those Northern Kentucky suburbs. And um, so they have that going for them. It's a pretty good facility. Um, interesting architecture <laughs> on that campus. Like it, so, I mean, they do have some, some things going for them that I think they've been able to, to leverage to get to where they to where they are so um well that was a neat story uh you know that's um a program that has pulled itself up by its bootstraps and i always like to to kind of highlight those um the acc is next and this one probably a little bit quicker because boy we beat the acc to death uh both literally and figuratively in different ways <laughs> we talked about them a lot and also we spent a lot of time uh, moaning about how weird and strange that season was but um what i noticed about the acc is that when you consider the way the season played out, you look at the teams in that conference, the only team that we never really at any point took seriously as a postseason contender was Wake. Everyone else either ended up in the postseason or was looked as a postseason contender seriously at some point. And that includes the team that actually technically finished in last in Boston College, because if you recall, and I know you do, Teddy, like they got out of the gate pretty hot. You know, they, they, won their first ACC series and they won a series against Auburn that of course we find out didn't really mean much in the end. But at that point they were ranked and we were like, okay, this is happening. Like BC is going to be in a regional again. Of course that didn't work out that way. But so you look at every team was really a team that we at one point probably would have bet on being a postseason team except Wake. And that's uh, frankly kind of amazing because in these major conferences, we you know you typically come into the year having a pretty good feel for who the two or three worst teams are going to be and just kind of assume they're not going to be postseason teams. And you and I talked a year ago about how, Hey, you know, there are any, like you could make a case for all of these teams, maybe uh, being postseason good. And it, it played out exactly that way. Yeah. And uh, as Wake just had a weird year, uh, obviously they, they got hit pretty hard by COVID early on, never seemed to recover by the time they recovered, it was too late. Uh, but they're about to, or like they have this this recruiting class on campus already, probably uh, that be a top fifteen class. They got their top recruit and Josh Hartle to like he opted out of the draft. That gives them one of the best incoming freshmen in the country. Um, they've they're also kind of turning the page from the Bobby Seymour Chris Lanzilli group that always seemed to have so much promise and didn't ever quite get over the hump there. So kind of a turning, you know, just a, a, a generational transition there, but this group coming in, very exciting for, for Wake Forest. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good note to to mention there because you're right. It is kind of a it was kind of a strange team. There were individual pieces even this year on Wake where you're like, that's you know. I mean, Brock Wilkin is going to be one of the top prospects in the 2023 class. Yeah, I have a feeling a few years from now I'm going to be very glad that I was there at Wake to start last season because Brock Wilkin hit a walk off home run. It made me kind of aware of him, aware of him right away. That's probably going to be among the career highlights for him when it's all said and done. So I think I, you know, that ended up being a, a good decision to be there, even though I, I couldn't feel my fingers for several days afterwards because it was, it was that cold outside that day. And of course, for COVID reasons, you know, I was sitting outside, which I was happy to do because, you know, the season was back and we were playing baseball, but man, was it, was it uh, chilly in Winston-Salem on that day? So that's the ACC. Um, so the big 12, I was actually just going to open in this to you. I'm putting you on the spot like a little bit. But you and I have remarked, and maybe this is, you know what, maybe the fact that I'm going to say this is going to be the, the, the fun fact here. The Big 12 really pretty much played out exactly like we more or less expected it would, with a couple of like minor exceptions, right? We basically flipped Oklahoma and Oklahoma State in the standings from where we thought they would end up. Like Oklahoma State was, you know, actually about what we thought they would be. Oklahoma was like a tick or two worse than we thought they would be. I was high on Kansas state, but ultimately, like I was thinking they'd finish fifth. They finished seventh, you know, um, Kansas and West Virginia, bring it up the rear. Um, this league really played out to script as far as we were concerned. So I'm curious if there's anything for you that really stands out here. If you force me to pick something, I think it's interesting that like Baylor really truly, and we know this because they were the last team left out of the field of 64 Baylor really truly almost did the classic like backdoor regional bid where they really don't do anything of note during the regular season, but being in a major conference, which helps your RPI, which helps your strength of, of, of record and strength of schedule. Um, as long as you take care of business against the teams you should beat, that can sometimes be enough. And, and Baylor almost pulled that off, but it was really just kind of a, I don't want to say blah year because that sells it short, but it was just really kind of a predictable year in the big 12. I mean, it was, like we've talked about this before, how basically the only thing like Oklahoma uh, wasn't quite as good as we thought they would be. Kansas State was like you, your ceiling on Kansas State did not get hit, but they showed why you were excited about them. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, the Big 12, Big 12 is frustrating um, in that I just wish that something would happen to shake it up a little bit or that like it is a conference would get a little more exciting. I like Texas tech has now been so consistently good that I'm like used to that. It's not, it's not novel that <laughs> the Texas tech is a top 10 team anymore and, you know, super regional and college world series contender. I just, I, I want something to happen there and, and maybe Texas is going to give it to us this year as they, you know, look like the, the number one team in the country and look to, to give the big 12 a run at a serious national title contender, like not serious is the wrong word, but uh, a team that can play for the national title, which hasn't happened in a, more than a decade now. I just want something to happen in the big 12. I don't, I don't like, and, and, you know, obviously we're going to, something is afoot in the medium term term, but it over the net, like I, I just, some somebody new come up and do something or somebody take the next step, whether that's, you know, Texas going and, and playing in a finals or, you know, Texas tech having more successful Omaha trip or, 
you know, something. I don't know. It, I, the, the conference could use a little more spice for me. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, <laughs> they would probably wish for the same, except that they're not really getting the type of spice they would probably want with the conference realignment being what it is. Um, or, 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 and like Jim Schlossnagel leaving. And, yeah, yeah. Not, not exactly what they're looking for. Um, but you're right. It really kind of has set in like a, a very clear, um, you know, pecking order has really kind of set in and it happens at the top and bottom, right? I mean, Texas Tech is very clearly there. TCU's had some dips, but mostly they've been there. You know, Texas, I guess, may have been the most interesting team historically just because they've done this yo-yo act the last, you know, six, seven years. But, but yeah, then you're always going to have, you know, the Kansas schools, um, you know, during that same period of time have, have typically been down. And, you know, West Virginia, you can bank on popping up. At this point, I think it looks like you can you can bank a little on that once every few years. But that's a once every few years thing. So um, I'm with you. Like um, I would over the next couple of years of this iteration of the Big Twelve, it would be nice if they give us a little something, a little something extra as as um, as they you know Texas and Oklahoma head out the door. And of course that'll it'll lead to another interesting period in the conference's history because I you know everything is on the table at this point from the Big Twelve no longer existing to the Big Twelve being some sort of uh, partner with some other conference to the Big 12 absorbing the American or the vice versa. <laughs> um, so we'll just have to obviously see on all of that. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, Big 10. Um, this one, uh, weird year in the Big 10, obviously, that goes without saying. Scheduling was bizarre. Um, but as I wrote in the stock watch, like it ended up being a more or less kind of a normal year. The, the, the right teams, quote unquote, ended up being the teams that were at the top of the standings, the teams we predicted. Um, they got three teams in the regionals, which is the low end of what they average these days, but it wasn't really out of step. And, and I'm not even really here to say if they played a normal schedule, they would have gotten more than maybe four. It didn't feel like a historically good year in the big 10, just from, from what I saw. Uh, but my thing here is that I, I found it kind of interesting that because I think because of the scheduling, it was hard to know what we were looking at for so long in the big 10, that two teams, Indiana and Michigan really looked like regional locks like all year right up until they weren't like I know you kind of caught this a little bit earlier than I did where as you were putting the field of 64 together every week we were kind of asking about Indiana and Michigan and when you were asking me about them I kind of thought like well why are we you know why are we talking about those teams but I think you were right to do so and we saw that with Indiana missing the regionals and Michigan being one of the last teams in that you know those teams looked pretty safe and then it was almost like they just kind of fell off a cliff. And I don't mean in terms of the wins and losses, because, you know, it wasn't necessarily that precipitous, but it was just like all of a sudden it became very, very clear that, oh, these teams are not as safe as we thought they were. And then, you know, we, we were obviously right to think that because of how, how close those teams were, one on the wrong side and one on the right side. Well, not to rehash how right I was about the Big Ten and the fact that they only got three teams in the field and one of them, Michigan, needed a significant help from the committee. Like just the committee took RPI. So they, like they just stuck with it, even in the completely blown up year of 2021, they just stuck with RPI, except for Michigan, basically. Um, I just wish that I stuck firmer throughout April and May that to my belief that the Big Ten was only going to get three teams. The, the, the problem was that I allowed myself to believe that for a while that, that they would, like that they could get more, 
that, that the committee might actually pay attention to what was going on on the field as opposed to just looking at numbers. And that that's on me. Uh, that that led me to to thinking Indiana was was probably safer than they were. Um, they uh, the, the other thing with IU is we, we definitely talked about this on the pod. All their easy games in the Big Ten were early. All their tough games were late. It was always going to be like a, a fight to the finish for them, and they wound up just losing too many of those those close games. And the, the Big Ten standings wound up being the again, not surprisingly, they wound up being the deciding factor. And IU just slipped late in the standings. But you know, I I, I still feel good about where those teams are going forward still feel good about the big 10 going forward once we get back to a normal year but yeah it was uh it was a strange thing um nebraska came on late uh that was that was a thing everyone was late to uh that in the first half of the season probably didn't pay the corn huskers enough respect and then we were probably paying too much attention not to michigan i like they, they were deserved um, but to some other teams in the, in the first half of the season, we're, we're probably paying a little bit too much attention to them and not enough attention to, to Maryland and Nebraska, which didn't have amazing starts to the season. It should be said, uh, but they, they came on late and wound up being the best two teams in the conference. Yeah, it was just, a, I think overall, my, my impression of the Big Ten was that it, it took us, you know, they, they played 44 games and it probably took us until game 30 to have any idea of what to make of it. Like we just had to like. Predictably, you know, like that, that was said all, all along too, that it was going to take a while because they were just playing each other. And who knows how good any of these teams really are, but there it was. And the one thing we could bank on uh, disappointingly for Iowa was that they were right there and then had some unfortunate series losses down the stretch and they, they miss out again. So unfortunately that was something that, that was the one thing that we kind of, feel like we, we saw coming because that's a script that we've read before, unfortunately, for the for the Hawkeyes, which continue to contend to a greater degree than it feels like they should in the Big Ten and, and yet have not had as many regional appearances as they as they would have liked. Um, okay, uh, moving on to the Pac-12. Um, just generally with the Pac-12, pretty good year. Um, you know, I think they, they really kind of maximized what they could do regional team-wise. Obviously, Oregon and Stanford – for uh, different reasons and from di- for different amounts of times, like Oregon bouncing back from having not been all that relevant recently, Stanford bouncing back from last year, not being very good. And also the uncertainty around, you know, fall, they didn't have fall practice. They didn't have really a normal lead up to the season, but that leads me to my larger point here was that the PAC 12, and I think to, to some degree, the big West, because the big West got two teams and the, the teams that were supposed to be good in the big West were good that for all of the talk of, what's going to happen with no fall practice what's going to happen with like a truncated lead up to the season it maybe there were some examples that i'm either forgetting or maybe glossing over but for the most part it maybe it's just the fact they only played other teams that had weird uh, years but it really doesn't feel like in the end that you know those types of situations really ended up hurting uh the west coast in terms of what they ended up doing from a from a postseason perspective when you look at the whole of it um looking back yeah it was uh it was an interesting league uh you know just in in terms of all of that and and, you know i don't know how much to attribute some of the uh surprises to you know like to what happened uh but yeah i mean it it wound up just really hard to evaluate how how all of that wound up shaking out but wound up being a very interesting league and then 
and an up year for, for the Pac-12 ultimately. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that, you know, things, but even, even if you really drill down, like, you know, it's easy to get focused on, you know, what Stanford did, but even a team like Cal, which it, you know, they were in the same boat as Stanford and they had a pretty nice year. I mean, Cal in, in a year, maybe where they played a couple of non-conference games, like maybe their RPI is in better shape and maybe they get in, you know, um, cause I think that team was, was like sneaky, pretty good. And, uh, and we found out draft wise also very talented. So, um, you know, uh, I just, it, I think there were a lot of situations where I think we were expecting something to happen on the West coast that didn't quite come to come to fruition. So that was, that was good for, for those leagues. Okay. Moving on to the sec. Um, you know, the, this one's tough because we, we spend so much time looking at the sec and so much of the sec is very much on the radar, but, um, I'm talking a little bit about Auburn. Um, not a great year for Auburn. Nobody would make an argument against that. I don't think. Um, you know, really struggled. They didn't have frontline starting pitching. You know, it, it's a program that's gotten used to having at least one real dude at the front of the rotation. And, you know, they tried some things, whether it was Cody Greenhill or hoping that, you know, Richard Fitz could maybe be that guy, you know, Jack Owen, uh, veteran arm there, like, but none of it really just took to that same degree, but uh, team could hit, like, it's actually pretty good offense, uh, pretty physical offense, 86 home runs. And the other thing about them is that they were pretty good at the end of the year. Um, you know, that it was a softer part of the schedule. Like there's a reason for that. I'm not suggesting they went out and, and beat a bunch of regional teams, but the schedule softened up at the end of the year. And this is a team that had taken a lot of lumps um, during the, the course of the season to that point. It was clear the way their season was going, um, but they played really well out on the stretch to get into the SEC tournament. Um, at the time when a lot of other teams were fading, um, they really kind of seemed like they redoubled their efforts a little bit. Um, and so I don't know. I, I find that kind of interesting and, and maybe it's, maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing because they, they do have some attrition on their roster. They're bringing in a pretty big class of players from the transfer portal so that, you know, there will be some turnover here, but I do wonder if the way they showed some fight late in the year might be a little bit of something um, as they lead into 2022 and, and try to compete to be a little more of a regional team uh, next season, because this was a team that really could have packed it in and, you know, lost some series down the stretch to some other teams that were in a similar place to what they were. And, and they, but they were winning series against the likes of Missouri and, and Texas A&M down the stretch. And then they won a series against Georgia, which was a, a bubble team when it was all said and done. So, um, you know, was not expected at that point of the season for Robert and, and they really were able to, to finish pretty strong, I think. Well, I mean, I, I think people who listen to this podcast know what I think of Butch Thompson. And so I'm not surprised that, you know, he kept that team fighting to, to the finish. I mean, he's, he's one of the best coaches in the country for me. And so, yeah, I mean, I, that, that's not surprising. I, I, they dealt with so many injury issues at, at various times throughout the year that it was just kind of a lost year for Auburn. And I, I do think that there could be a bounce back coming. Now, what does that look like in an insane SEC West? I don't know, <laughs> you know, like so much is on the table that the division is, at once very wide open and also super competitive. So how good does that mean Auburn will be next year? I, I, I don't know, but I do know that as long as, as uh, Butch Thompson is, is in charge of that program, I'm, I'm going to feel good about what they're doing there and, and that they're going to give it their best go, uh, you know, week in and week out that, that that's not a team that I would ever expect to, uh, to quit uh, down, down the stretch, no matter what's going on. So I, I'm, I'm interested in, in what they're, what they're doing. They're, they're going to have, have a bit of a new look, obviously, like you said, with some new players and, 
some guys moving on to pro ball uh, in 2022 could go a, a number of different ways for the Tigers, I feel like. Yeah, it's a virtual lock that you and I are going to do the same exercise we did the preseason this past year where it was like we look at AM, we look at Auburn, and we're like, okay, one of these teams is we're going to have to predict to finish last in the West or and or miss regionals, and you and I are going to have to like really agonize over it, especially given that we've talked about this before, but AM completely turned over its entire roster. So <laughs> we're not really going to be sure what to make of that. So I we will yeah, say and I mean like I, I I don't think Alabama will finish last, but you know, so much of our optimism about Bama going into 2021 was like, well, they got Connor Prelip and all these other guys. Well, now Prelip's hurt. Um, and you know, they lost their top two starting pitchers. And like I still think they're going to be pretty good, but again, it's the SEC West. Somebody's got to finish last. So that is true. That's the way standings I have found anyway. Uh, that's the way standings typically work. Somebody, somebody has to bring up the rear and in the sec West is usually a team that is actually pretty good. Um, that's the way it goes. Okay. So we'll wrap up um, with, with a mid-major thought. And I, I had a couple here, but I'll consolidate them. I think it was actually a pretty decent year in the mid-majors in a, in a lot of different ways, obviously conference USA. Um, and, and we are for our purposes here defining conference USA as part of the mid-majors the successes that they had, I think, were something that you and I did not see coming. Certainly, I don't think anybody could have really seen them coming. Some of it was really good teams, Louisiana Tech, Old Dominion, um, you know, Charlotte being a, a resurgent program in that way. They also got some breaks with scheduling that allowed the RPIs to be better than they would normally be. And then, as you know, once you have a couple teams that have those high RPIs, it starts to feed on itself. And all of a sudden, that's how you put together that, that type of year. So there was that. Uh, Dallas Baptist getting to a super regional again. That's a, you know, it's been said a million times. That's a team that will eventually get to Omaha as long as they stay on this, this course. Didn't quite get there this time, but they, they got there one went away uh, this time around. Uh, you know, even small things like the Mountain West Conference toyed with getting a second team, getting at large teams out of the Mountain West, which is not something we, um, we normally see. So uh, there, were, there was that as well. So pretty good year. But I think one conference that I think we thought if, if it was going to be a good year for mid-majors that we thought would be a part of that was the Sun Belt, and that was not the case. I wrote about this in Three Strikes. You and I have talked about this on air. It was just not a good year in the Sun Belt, and that's not taking anything away from South Alabama, who ends up winning the auto bid, had the best record in the conference, um, but it was 15-9. and nine. It's not like they really ran away with it. It was nice that Ethan Wilson, um, one of the better mid-major players in college baseball, was able to cap his career with a regional appearance. Um, that's also a team that fought through a lot of injuries. Um, so to get to that point was, was cool for that, for that group. They were really to overcome adversity. They got to a regional final, um, a lot of success there, but, you know, we went into the year thinking like, okay, Texas state is one of the oldest teams in the country. Like they've been close to a region. They were close to regional in 2019. They looked like they could get there in 2020. We thought, okay, here it is. Didn't happen. They finished last in their division and really last in the, in the entire Sun Belt by percentage points. Uh, ULM had a great start in 2020. Uh, we thought maybe, okay, that maybe they can build on that. Well, no, they, they didn't. Um, you know, UT Arlington, similar thing. You know, the Raging Cajuns, we thought, okay, Matt Deggs, you know, he did something at Sam Houston where in year two, he really, you know, that, that was the, the breakout year for Sam Houston was, was his second year there. And, you know, this was technically his second year, but can you really count 2020? And then it turned out that they were just, they were just okay. You know, Coastal Carolina really struggled. Um, so it was a year that we thought, you know, this could be the year for the Sun Belt. You've got old teams, you've got 
um, you know, inspired coaching hires that maybe they, they make an impact there. And it really just didn't play out that way. It ended up, it ended up being South Alabama, who is kind of this like steady program that's usually kind of finishing somewhere in the middle in the Sun Belt. Um, it really ended up being them that were able to basically have the type of season they always have. And, but just taking advantage of the rest of the conference, not being as good as, as we kind of predicted it would, would be in the end. Yeah, it was interesting to see how age mattered and didn't matter across the country, um, you know, as, as college football prepares to get going and, and they have the extra year of eligibility now coming into effect, like uh, you're, you're seeing some some coaches wondering about like what what is having all of your starters back mean and from what we learned in baseball sometimes it mattered and sometimes it didn't you know if you look at La Tech um, you know it probably really mattered for the Bulldogs they they were one of the older teams think about a guy like Hunter Wells at third base and Parker Bates and um, you know they probably took uh, took advantage of that by by having. A, uh, a a banner year, but you look at some of these other teams, like you mentioned, uh, just up the road from from La Tech, ULM wasn't able to do the same thing. So, you know, it it wound up not I, age obviously mattered in some places, but it, it it seems like it only mattered so much, and uh, that that made some of these these leagues harder to to predict, especially at this level where the age stuff really was was more pronounced, you know, and. In the SEC, there are only so many seniors back. Uh, but in, in some of these leagues, there were a lot of, of teams that, that had a lot of the, the fifth-year kind of players. Uh, and, and some of them took advantage and, and some of them didn't. And, and it, it's just hard to know how much how much was age and how much was talent and, and how much was something else entirely. Yeah, it had to be age plus something else. You know, it couldn't just be age. I think that's kind of what we learned. Age plus, right, right. Like, age plus you got some breaks. Um, age plus, you know, we're really talented, like Louisiana Tech. I mean, that, that's a team that could have been in a regional any number of years before 2021. They just had some some poor luck in terms of losing in conference tournaments or RPI wasn't quite good enough, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it had to be age plus something, I think, is the takeaway there. So uh, that's a wrap on that. Like fun doing the stopwatches. It's always nice to kind of get one like last look at, at how things were before we we really turn the page. So um those were just some things that, that stood out to me that, that had gone a little bit, a little bit under the radar that I think, you know, in some cases I think will be instructive as we start to look ahead to 2022. Absolutely. Which, uh, like I said, is, is happening more and more as we, as we shift closer to, uh, to the start of fall ball and away from, away from the summer. So with that, we'll, I'll remind you that we're continuing to do the podcast weekly during the off season and, and we're going to keep bringing new guests like Jason Dietrich uh, throughout the offseason looking for uh, just looking to get insight from from folks around the game and, and look uh, dive deeper into teams and, and and the like so make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app be that Apple podcast Stitcher Spotify wherever you find your podcasts you can subscribe to the Baseball America podcast can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And there's plenty of content over on the website, baseballamerica.com, if you want to check out all of Joe's stock watches, for instance. Uh, so plenty to do here in the off 
in terms of college baseball, or, you know, if you're into pro ball that they're, uh, they're going strong and we got a, got a lot of content for that over on the website as well. So make sure to, uh, to check that out. If you're interested, we will be back here next week with another edition of the baseball America college podcast, which as always is presented by rap Soto. So thank you all for listening for Joe. I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.